Welcome to another episode of Baseball Nostalgia 1869. We have another great episode for you. We're going to be running down the average starting, uh, the numbers for the catchers. Uh, last week we looked at the pitchers, starting pitchers, and the relief pitchers. This week we're going to look at the catchers. And you know, it's very interesting about the catching position, as not only do they have to be great defenders, but they also have to produce at the plate. And mainly from the beginning of their time, as a position, they mainly were not meant to hit. Their main goal was to be the protector. They mainly batted eighth or ninth in the lineup, mainly eighth because back in the day, the pitcher batted ninth and they gave him support and it can be easily substituted. Now, pit catchers are the most, probably the second most important person on your team, maybe arguably the most important. Not only do they have to be block balls behind the plate, they have to be the ones who are not only. Uh, Amazing for your pitching staff. They have to know the pitchers. They have to give them good signs, call a good game, uh, throw guys out at the plate, block balls out in front of the plate as well. And it's not only that. They are so valuable. The catchers are so important, and they've been one of the most important positions in baseball for 153 years. And there have been some great catchers in the day. Uh, but again, I and then also they had to produce on the offensive side. I know the catchers nowadays don't produce offensively as they did back in the 1980s. And uh, with Johnny Bench in the 70s or in the 1990s with Piazza and Rodriguez or with Gary Carter and Carlton Fisk. But I do truly believe that catchers still are valuable today. Maybe not at the offensive production, but still I feel like catchers nowadays are more valuable with the defensive side. I feel like it's a complete 180 of what we had previously. But man-oh-man catching is so vital. Um, it takes a lot of pain and wear off your body. And to do that for a 20-year career like some of these guys did is pretty impressive. I know that some of these catchers were designated hitters. They played for base, but their main position was obviously catcher. And we're going to look at the average stumbers and determine what determines – we will determine what is a very numbers to be in the Hall of Fame and look at reasons why they should be very – again, looking at the current player in the era that they played in rather than then comparing. Because – the players now are not going to have 20 home runs, 100 RBIs like Johnny Bench or Piazza, Gary Carter, Carlton Fisk, Pudge Rodriguez, or Bjogi Berra. Like th 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 those players are in a league of their own, so it's not fair to compare them to them. Like yes, Salvador Perez, uh, Buster Posey, and Joe Maurer have done those. Joe Maurer's never had a 100 RBI season, but he did win an MVP, three batting titles. And I, I just feel like the catcher now is more about defense than it's ever been in a long time. Now, going to, to the catcher position, um, the first star catcher wasn't until Mickey Cochran when he debuted for the Philadelphia Athletics with Connie Mack in the 1920s. Uh, he was one of the first power-hitting catchers. Cochran, he retired with 1,652 hits. 119 home runs, 830 runs driven in, and a 320 batting average. So when he was inducted into the hall, he had the highest batting mark, which the average part. He had the most home runs and the hits by catcher. The numbers wouldn't last very long as they would be broken in 1954 and 1955 by Bill Dickey and Gabby Hart Hartnett. Now, moving to the 1950s, you know, we had some new catchers. So, Yogi Berra and Roy Campanella. Campanella played some of his career in the Negro Leagues, but he did win three league MVPs with the Dodgers in the 1950s from 1951, 53, and 55. Yogi Berra also won three league MVPs 
and he has the most runs driven in by a catcher with 1,430 and a record that probably won't be broken anytime soon. So from Barra, he was the all-time home run leader from his enshrinement, which was in 1972 until 1981. Uh, but that was until Johnny Bench passed his mark of 358 and finished with 389. The 1970s launched a new era for catchers, with Bench claiming two NL MVPs in 1970 and 1972. In 1970, he set the mark for the most home runs hit by a catcher until Salvador Perez broke his mark by hitting 46. Uh, I don't think that mark will be broken anytime soon because of the fact that catchers don't probably play 70% of their games most of the time, and it's just very hard for catchers to have a very offensive productive output due to the fact that they are so highly valued defensively, more so than they are offensively in this current era of baseball. Not going to say that there's not catchers who are able to do that, Perez could do that again this season, but he is getting older. He's not getting any younger, but it was very impressive for Salvador Perez last season. Now, in the 1970s, you had uh, a, a besides Bench with the Reds, who turned the big red machine as they won two World Series. He was the World Series MVP back in 1956 with the big red machine as they beat the Boston Red Sox in seven games, who Carlson Fisk hit that memorable home run in game six to send it to the game seven, which Joe Morgan hit the clutch hit in the late innings of game not of game seven winning them their first world series since in a long long time now the year later he did win the world series mvp as they swapped the yankees and then he ended his fantastic career retiring in 1983 and was inducted into the hall of fame in 1989 the highest mark by any player he had a vote total out of 431 of the 447 ballots for 96.4% and he got in alongside legendary left fielder Carl Gashemsky and outstanding pitcher of his era, Gaylord Perry. Now, alongside him in that same era, you had Carlton Fisk, as I just mentioned, with the White Sox and the Red Sox, getting inducted with the Chicago White Sox, having two silver sluggers at his time, a couple, three gold glove awards, and was, I mean, a single gold glove award, uh, three silver sluggers, and was one of the most important players, I mean, regarding of pitchers of that era, to come out of that time. Now, then you had the young backstop, the young talented backstop with the Montreal Expos and Gary Carter, mainly successful for becoming a key part of the New York Mets winning their first championship since 1969 and their second and most recent in 1986 when they won a, a franchise best 100 plus games. They defeated the Houston Astros in six games and then they marched to the World Series. They were down three games to two. Going back home at Shea Stadium for Game 6. They had to win Game 6. And the New York Mets overcame all odds and defeated the Boston Red Sox in seven games to win the World Series. With a little help from Bo Buckner, putting that ball, the Mets won 108 games that year. They lost 54. They ousted the Houston Astros in six games, led by the outstanding Nolan Ryan. Uh, the masterful last game that took forever to play. I believe it was 18 innings, and they won that game. And then the Red Sox, who they matched up in the World Series, who beat the California Angels in the five-game series, after being down, after splitting the first two games, I mean, after being down two games to none, they went to New York. They won three, two of three games. Then they went back home, and after being down, and they had to face no uh, Roger Clemens in the deciding game, uh, they were down, entering the ninth inning. 
the score was three to two. The score was three to three, and the Red Sox did edge a uh, the Red Sox did edge a five three advantage. But the Mets were so relentless; they scored three unanswered runs in the tenth inning, helped by a wild pitch, and by Stanley, and by the fact of Bill Buckner's error that resulted in the winning run scoring. And Ray Knight crossed the plate, winning the World Series MVP the day later. So you had Gary Carter, who was a great player, a five-time Silver Slugger, a two-time World Glove Award winner, a Hall of Famer. And sadly, he passed away not too long ago, but known as the kid, one of the greatest hitting catchers of all time. Now, moving a decade later, after those guys retired, you had Mike Piazza and Ivan Rodriguez, who, Ivan Rodriguez was one of the greatest, greatest defenders behind the plate and maybe the best all-around catcher. I mean, you can make the argument with Johnny Bench, but those two kind of go hand-in-hand by being great offensively and defensively. But in my opinion, I think that Johnny Bench was the better player thinking about his on-base plus slugging, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the episode. So on-base plus slugging takes into account your like on-base plus slugging percentage, and it takes it into the league ballpark factor. 100, 100 is the league average, while uh, 150 is 50% better than the league average. Bench's career mark was 125, which is a really good considering uh, the era that he played in. It's really good for Johnny Bench to have a, my, my, my mistake, a 126 uh, uh, on-base plus slugging plus. So a really good mark for him. Now, when we go to Ivan Rodriguez, his numbers dip a little, but it's still pretty impressive. He won an MLB record, 13 gold gloves at the catcher spot with Johnny Bench getting 10, which are the most by any catcher, and the only two in the top 10 or the top 11 to have at least that many gold glove awards and be in the Hall of Fame. Now, Ivan Rodriguez was mainly a compiler, um, suspected use of steroids, but he got into the Hall of Fame in his first in his first ballot, uh, rightfully so. Most hits as a catcher of two thousand eight hundred hits plus uh, over a thousand RBIs. Won an MVP, seven times Silver Slugger, thirteen time Gold Gold Corner. Like I said, World Series winner, NLCS MVP. He was an All Star multiple times, and he was a really good player. And now going to Mike Piazza. Mike Piazza was probably the complete opposite. Mike Piazza was probably the greatest hitting catcher of all time. I mean, Joe Maurer can possibly put in that category. And you might put Buster Posey in there as well. Maybe Otter Molina. But I think that uh, Mike Piazza, with his incredible power and contact, what's insane about him is he hit 308 in his entire career, never winning a single batting title. And he never won an MVP either, coming second place twice in 1996 and 1997, respectively. And granted, he could have won a couple of those awards. But again, they didn't value the catcher spot as they did nowadays. Now, with Piazza, he never won a MVP. He never won a Gold Glove Award. His defensive war is very bad, but again, he was an okay catcher because he was a really great hitting one as well, winning the most Silver Sluggers from the catcher's spot position. And he reached top of the Mets go to the World Series for the first time in 14 years in 2000, losing to the Subway Series. He was the last out in Game 5, hitting a ball off the bat of Mariano Rivera. And it was oh so close to getting out of old Chase Stadium to tie up the game and send it to extra innings. But Bernie Williams caught the ball. The Yankees won three in a row, and it was all history. 
The Mets never went back, and Mike Piazza started to digress in his numbers in the coming seasons. What's even crazier about that is that Piazza has the most home runs by a catcher, 427, and he has so many, so many doubles, and he has the best OPS plus by a major league player, 143, uh, with uh, Josh Gibson, the greatest, I probably arguably say that he's the best Negro League player ever. He has a career OPS plus of a godly 215. Who would have thought, what are the numbers he could have put up if he would have played in the big leagues? We will never know, but we can tell that his numbers are insane. Now, coming back after the era, after Rodriguez and Piazza retired, uh, we had a new era of catchers. Yes, were they really, really good? They were definitely good. You had Buster Posey. Before that, you had Yadier Molina as well, who's still kicking it and is playing in another season with the St. Louis Cardinals. Now, Buster Posey won an MVP in 2012 and a batting title while winning three World Series MVPs and also a NL Rookie of the Year award back in 2010. Without his injury, which caused a rule change that players could not ram into the catcher to try to break up a play at the plate, he could have had a lengthy career and possibly could have had 2,000 hits. He finished with 1,500. I think he's a borderline Hall of Famer, considering how catchers are more valued defensively and the fact that he was a very important part to those Giants dynasty teams in the 2000s. Now, Joe Mauer, on the other hand, excelled all the time in the regular season. He won three batting titles in a four-year stretch from 2006 to 2009, including the AL MVP in 2009 leading the average on-base percentage, slugging percentage, and OPS and OPS+, plus, earning him his first MVP honor. His best season by far, driving in 96 runs and hitting 20-plus homers. They won the division, but unfortunately lost to those great New York Yankees teams in the 2000s, who are still their kryptonite to this day. They still can't beat the Yankees, and the Twins are now entering a re- rebuilding mode as they made a trade to get rid of Josh Donaldson's contract to the Yankees, and they in exchange got... Giovanni Grishella, and Gary Sanchez. We'll see how that works out for the New York Yankees and Minnesota Twins this season. Now, these two players that I mentioned will be on the writer's ballot in 2024. That's Joe Maurer's first year on the ballot. He retired in 2018. And Buster Posey, who just retired in 2021, will first arrive in 2027. So, in five years. So, now that we've kind of established how hard the position of the, the of catcher is and its evolution in baseball history. Let's take a look at the averages for these 19 Hall of Fame catchers. So with WAR, I, it's very very low. It is the lowest out of all the eight, ten, all the 11 positions. You got the nine, you got the nine positions in the field, uh, eight positions in the field plus designated hitter, over two pitchers, reliever, and starter. 48.2 uh, with the highest, with right field being the highest at 70.6. So, but the thing is that my data includes three catchers who played in the Negro Leagues, Josh Gibson, Bismacki, and Luis Santop, which is a 10% decrease from the baseball references, 53.7 war. So these three players played in less games, which resulted in them putting up less counting stats than their MLB counterparts in Cooperstown. But again, they still need to be recognized as being in the Hall of Fame because their accomplishments are need to be celebrated. Now, games caught. So, like, for each position, I wanted to look at, like, each position 
And this was kind of the one that I had trouble with. Uh, I had a discrepancy problems because of the fact that there was a lot of different positions that, I mean, a, there was an appearance number and then there was a games number and they were always different most of the time. Sometimes they were the same. So what I did was most of the time I was looking at the games caught and there was a discrepancy in games caught on base reference as standard fielding when it would show one number and appearance is another. So thus for the data collected, used for the number from appearances, which goes for the other seven positions going forward. So it's not fair for me to use one metric for one position and different for another, so I made it the same. Now, moving on to like defensive war, like I said, defensive war is probably the most important aspect probably of uh, analyzing a catcher in today's era. It doesn't mean that they're going to be a Hall of Famer. It doesn't, it doesn't diminish what they did on the field. But as we know, the greatest defensive war belongs to Ivan Rodriguez, who has a outstanding 29.6 defensive war as a catcher and Gary Carter ranks second and Johnny Bench is in there as well but again according to Joe Bloggs in his article titled D-War to end all wars defensive war is a number that estimates how much value above replacement level a player brings with his defense Rodriguez leads Hall of Fame catchers with a 29.6 defensive war with the late Gary Carter in second with a 26.1 defensive war Luis Santop has the lowest D-War at 0.2, but you know what? That's not fair because he only played in 115 games over a four-year stretch in the New Year League, so the actual belongs to Mickey Cochran's atrocious 0.7 D-War over 13 seasons. I'm not saying that Mickey Cochran was a bad player. He was obviously a very influential part in turning around the catcher from making it more of a defensive position to making it more offensively sound. So, no disrespect to Mickey Cochran. I'm just pointing out that he does have the worst, if you're counting Major League Baseball players who played catcher and are in the Hall of Fame, he has the least amount of defensive war. And as you see, as I stated, Mike Piazza's down there in the bottom, but you got Verriga's one, Carter two, Bench three, Selak three, Fist three. You got a lot of great players who are great offenders and defenders in that list. Now, we're also going to look at Gold Glove Awards. I know that sometimes when we think about Gold Glove Awards, sometimes think of it's kind of like a popularity contest. It's done a better job in recent years, but it was the first award in the 1957. So like Yogi Bear and all the players that played in the dead ball era or the era that was proceeding afterwards when the home run and the live, the beginning of the live ball era, it was not around yet. So players like Yogi Berra, Ray Sop, like all those players back in the day had no chance to win a Gold Glove Award. But you possibly assume that some of those guys would have won a couple of those awards if it was actually one that they could have won. But, but the reason why I say that it's kind of like a popularity contest is because when everyone always makes fun of Derek Jeter for winning five when he really had terrible defensive metrics. And the atrocious one was when Rafael Palmeiro won the award in 1990, won the award in 1999 when only playing in 28 games at first base and 128 games at DH. There's no gold glove award if he has an eight hitter, obviously, because there's no position in the field. But of the top 11 all-time gold glovers by catchers, hence two Hall of Famers. As I stated, Rodriguez has a 13, which is the all-time mark, and Bench, who had the record until Rodriguez broke it, has 10. Molina is the most by an active player with 9. So in my, in my mind, Molina is most likely to be enshrined into Cooperstown in 2028 if he does retire after the 2022 season. If he wants to continue to play in 2023 with the Cardinals, he was likely to do so, but he'll have to subsequent another year to wait to get into the Hall of Fame. 
He's a 10-time All-Star, a four-time Platinum Gold Glove Award winner, has two World Series rings, and a Silver Slugger in 2013, along with 2,112 hits, 171 home runs, 998 RBIs, with a career 280 batting average, 330 on base percentage, and a 402 slash line. And with this list of these 11 players, so I looked up all the uh, uh, amazing stats about the Gold Glove Award, and a total of 46 players from the American and National League have won a Gold Glove Award. But only 11 have won four or more, which consists of Ivan Rodriguez, Johnny Bench, Dottie Molina, Bob Boone, the father of Aaron Boone and Brett Boone, Jim Sunberg, Bill Freehan, Phil Cradle, Charles Johnson, the player who was the catcher on the 1997 Florida Marlins team that won the World Series, shocked the world. Mike Mathena, the manager for the Kansas City Royals, good defender in his heyday, and Tony Pena. He won a uh, manager of the year with the uh, Kansas City Royals back in 2003 and hit a walk-off home run for the Tribe back in 1995 to send the home crowd home safely. Now, three are on the, uh, on the battery mates list that have appeared in more than 200 starts together. Since 1914, Molina with Adam Rainwright for 300 and counting. If they start in 25 games this season, they will become the all-time battery mark, and that will be history. That is probably likely to happen if no injuries are made. Knock on wood to make sure that's possible, because those guys have been pitching together since 2007. It's been crazy. Their run is dominance, and they're going to be remembered forever, no matter what happens this season. Now, you have Crandall with Hall of Famer Warren Spahn for 316 games, and Bill Freehan and Mickey Lolich for a record 324 games. So it's very, I'm looking forward to see if Wainwright and Molina both set up to break the record for the most battery mates. So it's going to be very, very interesting to see if that's going to happen. But again, when you think about those battery mate things, it's, and what's even crazy to me is that Mike Keegan is on that list three times with the Cleveland Indians. He caught Bob Feller, Randy Wynn, and... Bob Lemon, more than 200 times. That is just amazing that one player caught that many times. But again, that was before free agency. And I'm not surprised that he's on that list three times with three different pitchers on the same team because the Indians in the 1950s and early 40s and late 40s had some of the best pitchers of all time. Three Hall of Famers. You had Randy Wynn, Bob Feller, and the great Bob Lemon as well, all in Cooperstown. And I think it's really, really impressive to me that he's on that list three times. Now, with this uh, discussion on the average uh, defensive numbers, as so important as it is, there's also numbers on the offensive side that are also important when analyzing catchers. Yes, they may not be up to par with the other Hall of Famers on this list, but again, they are all deemed to be worthy as each position will be analyzed differently since each position historically is known for doing different types of things. So we're going to be looking at the offensive side of the catcher position, and then we're going to fully analyze what I think needs to be done for the current guys going to be getting in the ballot in t- in the coming years. Now, moving to the offensive side, we're going to analyze the catcher's production, as I just was going to be talking about. So, the average Hall of Fame catcher averaged 6,686 plate appearances and 5,926 at bats, which is the lowest mark of any position. And it might have to do with catchers regularly batting eight to focus on defense, that according to fan graphs would give them a 3.90 plate appearances per game, 
started or 2.84 plate appearances per game with subs, according to Douglas in 2017. Now, 10 Kubrick members exceeded both averages, with Mickey Cochran, Ray Salak, and Eli Lombardi just missing by a couple hundred plate appearances and at-bats. Now, when we're focusing on runs, runs was at 868, with it being reached by six of the past eight, and docked for an average of 927 runs, which is a 6.8 increase on the original average. The average for hits is less than 20k, less than 2k at 1719, and that's also the lowest output by any position. And the only one that's not reached that 2k threshold. Where more than half the catchers reached the mark, the doubles mark is 304, the least of any position, and 51 triples that was exceeded by six of the first time members and just two of the past 10. So regarding the long ball, the catchers averaged 20 home runs to be right in the middle of the other positions in his in the 50th percentile. Uh, all 19 catchers averaged to drive in 988 runs, which is the only position to not drive in 1,000 or more. So again, like what's even crazy about this is like, even when people say, oh, well, catchers aren't really the best position like regarding offense, you got to look at this at a perspective saying like in early years as I was talking about, the catcher was not the one that drive and runs. They were batting eighth and that really shifted in the 1950s and 1960s and 70s with the addition of Yogi Berra, Roy Campanella, who won MVP awards at the position and did it with a lot of power too. And this even went further with Johnny Bench, who was a key member to the Reds winning the World Series. And so was Gary Carter and Carlton Fisk with the White Sox and Red Sox. And then even you go down further with Ivan Rodriguez and uh, Mike Piazza. I know it's not I know it's not as different now, but looking at these low averages for catchers, you got Yogi Berra, Johnny Bench, Carlton Fisk, Gary Carter, Mike Piazza, and Ivan Rodriguez were sluggers who redefined the position. They they literally changed the position as it was today, and I don't think that those numbers are ever going to be replicated because of the fact that they are so valued defensively now than they were in the past. So those six are the only backstops in MLB history and that are in the Hall of Fame to have at least 2,000 hits, 300 home runs, and 1,200 RBIs. With the most hits and home runs and RBIs belonging to Rodriguez, Piazza, and Bench with 2,844 hits for for Rodriguez, 427 home runs for for Piazza, and 1,430 runs driven in for Johnny for Johnny for uh, Yogi Berra. And it's really incredible to me that like Yogi Berra only had five seasons of 100 RBIs or more when Bench and Mike Piazza all had six. It's just Yogi Berra just put up some incredible numbers for the New York Yankees winning 10 World Series during the Yankees dynasty. Uh, he has one for every single finger, if you count them all. <laughs> now, four of the six players won at least three silver sluggers, except for Barra and Bench, because the, the award was not used until 1980, and again, Yogi Berra was out of the league by that time, and he was done managing too, and Johnny Bench was starting his decline in Major League Baseball. If the award was introduced in the 1970s, Bench would definitely have won at least three or four of those guys, specifically 1970 and 1972, when he won his two MVP awards. Uh, now, 
Now, now, a different group of four had four more seasons with 20 home runs on hard RBIs, with Bench and Piaggio each having six apiece, while Fisk and Rodriguez combined for just three. Now, as you look at this list, it's pretty impressive considering the era that you guys played it. You know, the pitchers were still pretty good. I mean, but what's really crazy to me is that this era is from 1950, and then there's no one in 1960. Then you have 1970, and then everyone up till 2011. And now, like, even with the great catchers we have now, with when we had Joe Maurer in his prime, Buster Posey in his prime, Molina, they never were going to crack those numbers because most of those guys were contact guys besides Posey's 2012 MVP season. And you have to remember that Joe Maurer had an amazing season in 2009. And so did... Yadier Molina was third place in 2013 when they went to the Fall Classic for the third time, for the fourth time in his historic career. So it's just, again, the era that these guys played in is is something to always be looking at. Now, going specifically with those players, so I'm kind of like going to go crazy here, but so each player, if I like looked at them combined. If I combined Barra, Bench, Fisk, Carter, and Piazza, and, and Ivan Rodriguez, the six Hall of Famer backstops with with those metrics, the home runs, RBIs, and the hits that I just mentioned, what's crazy, what's even crazy about this is that they were the only ones to do that and they combined for 80 all-star appearances between the six of them, 26 gold gloves, half of them won by Pudge Rodriguez, by the way, 25 silver sluggers, more than half of those, close to half of those won by Mike Piazza, 14 World Series, 10 won by Yogi Berra, six MVPs, half of them were won by uh, Yogi Berra, with the other three won by Johnny Bench, who won two, and then the other one was won by Padre Rodriguez. There were three Rick of the Years. You had uh, Carlton Fisk, Johnny Bench, and Mike Piazza. So there's a very good line there with those players. And also you have three All-Star Game MVPs. One for Padre Rodriguez, and two for Gary Carter. So it's a pretty legendary pedigree, if you ask me. Um, and each player did play in the World Series, whether it be winning one. Unfortunately, Carlton Fisk is the odd man out, as he did not win a World Series during his time, and neither did Mike Piazza. But they both did play in a World Series and were main contributors on their respective franchises when they were there. Uh, but it's just unfortunate that they didn't win it. Um, Piazza had played in some many great teams in his careers, and it's just unfortunate that he never was able to get that spark um, and reached the top because he was a really great player um, and he just never was able to get to the top of baseball. And I actually believe that that MVP was won by Mike Piazza uh, in the uh, All-Star game. Yes, it, it, my, my mistake. It wasn't Pedro Rodriguez. It was, uh, it was Mike Piazza who won that MVP in the All-Star game. So again, it was a very, very, very great thing to look at as like these these catchers these six guys redefine the position as i said and i i don't think that these numbers are going to be t- i don't i mean unless someone redefines the position once again and wants to go crazy they can 
But man, oh man, these catchers are going to be solidified as the probably the top six. If I had to put them in order, this is really, really tough. Uh, I would probably go Johnny Bench 1 because he was the best combination of average power defense and playing for a winning team and playing in the clutch. Two, I would probably go with Mike Piazza just because of the fact that he was an amazing hitter and he could get you in a game just with one swing of the bat. And he did it with an amazing efficiency and amazing sabermetrics that I'll talk about in a little bit. Yogi uh, Bear is probably number three on my list because of his longevity, his 10 World Series wins. He's got the most RBIs by a catcher. He was the first catcher to actually utilize power. Him and Roy Campanella kind of have that same tie to them. Uh, I would probably It's a very toss-up for four and five and six. If I'm going to have to go with power here, I might go Carlton Fisk at four, and I might go Pudge at five and Carter at six. No disrespect to those three guys. It's very hard because, like, Pudge Rodriguez, in my opinion, was more of a compiler, while Gary Carter and Carlton Fisk were very good players in their careers, almost winning MVPs in their own right. And Gary Carter was a solid player for the Mets, even if it didn't last as long as many have hoped. So now for the average slash line. So the slash line, as I said, is average, on-base percentage, and slugging percentage. So the average is a 296 average, 368 on-base percentage, and a 466 slugging percentage. If you add the on-base plus slugging and the slugging percentage, you get an on-base plus slugging of 834. Surprisingly, it's not the worst as shortstops take the honor. With, unfortunately, with a 291 batting average, 360 on base percentage, and an atrocious 418 slugging percentage, which is combines for a 711 on base plus slugging. Piazza, as I stated, has some of the best numbers in baseball a 308 batting average, a 377 on base percentage, a 545 slugging percentage. In a 9.22 on base oh, on base plus slugging, while Gibson's 3.74 average, 4.58 on base percentage, and a 7.19 OP slugging percentage, and a 1.177 on base plus slugging is even more impressive. The last stat to be looked at is the on base plus saver metric. On base plus is a saver metric that's an extension of on base plus slugging, as I was talking about earlier. That accounts a player's on-base plus slugging percentage that normalizes across the whole league, which is measured to see how elite a batter is. While discussing the averages, the average is a 126 on-base plus slugging, and that was reached by 12 Hall of Famers, who, when you combine them all together, a 136 on-base plus slugging, or OPS plus, which is essentially, because again, the average is 100, it's 36% better than the league average. With the seven others, average of 111 OPS plus, which is essentially 11% better than the league average. As I stated, Josh Gibson has the best OPS plus of all time at 215, and Piazza for the catcher per spot has a 143. The worst belongs to Rick Farrow and Ray Shilek, who have the worst at OPS plus of 95 and 83, respectively. Now, as I stated, the catcher position has come a long way from being just a defensive position to help mainly the pitchers draw base dealers and mainly be there for the whole pitching staff. But now, from the 1960s onward, 1950s onward, it's been more of an offensive position thanks to the likes of Gary Carter, Johnny Bench, Yogi Berra, Carlton Fisk, 
Ivan Rodriguez and Mike Piazza. Without those guys, baseball probably is not the same, and a catching position is probably still just about defense and batting eighth. Now catchers are batting at anywhere in the lineup, and some of them have been really key contributors for World Series teams and playoff teams in the past. And we've seen that in recent years. Maybe the catcher spot hasn't gotten much light to it. I mean, if you think about, like, like again, the catcher is difficult to analyze because, they again, they were analyzing on defense first and offense second, and it's becoming more prevalent now. And, the, and gone are the days of the catchers consistently hitting 20 bombs and driving at 100 each season. Because right now, that's not their main goal. Their main goal is for the drive of the pitchers and the pitching staff, most importantly. Yes, if they can provide extra offense, that is greatly appreciated. But their main goal is to be a defender and stop every ball that comes behind home plate, get every runner out as second as they possibly can, and manage a pitching staff which is overwhelming and stressful as it already seems. And putting offense even another part of the pie that the catcher has to deal with. Why I believe it's one of the hardest positions, maybe not the hardest, maybe not if the hardest position in baseball. Now, now, Yonimer, as I stated, Yonimer Williams seems like a lock for a uh, member for me, while Joe Maurer has the awards and stats, but, you know, he had some injuries, he had some concussions down the line, so I, I kind of feel like he's going to get in, it might take some time, he had a lengthy career, but again, and is 1,500 hits enough for, and 158 home runs and 729 RBIs enough for Buster Posey for enshrinement? I mean, only time will tell. But again, as I said about the other two positions, I feel like each player should be looked at in the era they played in, who they played against, and again, the Saber metrics, looking at the OPS+, plus, the way the runs created. I didn't talk about that. I wanted to talk about that. But it's very, very similar to uh, on-base plus slugging plus, so I didn't really want to combine those together because they're very, very similar. But I, I, I really feel like there's some great characters in the game right now. You got Salvador Perez. You have JT Romuto. I mean, there's, there's really great catchers in the game today. You got defensive specialists. You got Austin Hedges. And you have all these guys. They're all valuable. Maybe not as valuable as others, but I feel like the catcher position will always be, besides pitcher, the most important position to have on your team. And you're all, I know you're only as good as your next get starter, but you're also as good as your defensive catcher. Uh, that's what I have for this episode of Baseball Nostalgia 1869. Thanks for tuning in. Next week, we're going to continue our series of the average numbers for Hall of Fame players. Uh, we're going to continue. We're going to do a joint one. We're going to do the first baseman designated hitters because they're very, very similar in their numbers, their power history. And just because first baseman, when they get older and they can't play the field in the American League now, eventually, finally, in the National League, they're going to be the designated hitter. And I, I just think that it's like very important to like analyze their career and what led to the creation of a DH and see how their numbers are similar in regards and how the designated hitter numbers are definitely inflated with only three members being inducted. So thanks for tuning in. Uh, please read the article that's also when we talked about this topic. Um, if you want to learn more, you can join my Instagram, Baseball Nostalgia. On Instagram, you can look at the podcast on Spotify and you can uh, – what read the blogs on Wix blog baseball JB J Buttle 58. Thanks for tuning in and have a great rest of your day.